Hello and welcome to the Talk Nerd to Me podcast. In this episode, we released from the Carrick Institute Vault Professor Carrick's discussion on neurology, olfaction, autonomics, and respiratory applications. Professor Carrick discusses the olfactory system as a window of other presentations of neurodegenerative diseases, as well as utilization of respiratory exercises in these syndromes. We hope you enjoy the show. Good day. Last day we left off talking about the olfactory system. We talked about the fact that most doctors don't examine for it. And we talked about its incidence not only with upper respiratory infections but viremia, but as a potential pathway for the entry of activity which might be pathological in the brain. We left off talking about the differential between supranuclear palsies and Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease having a higher incidence of a sense of uh, loss of smell then does supranuclear palsies, and of course the Alzheimer's disease. And we're continuing on looking at different aspects in the neurological uh, syndromes. We know that head trauma accounts for about 20% of all uh, chemosensory disorders uh, in general. So it's a fair whack of them. And the problem with head trauma is that a lot of people don't remember that it actually happened to them. Of course, falls are big, but car accidents, other aspects of trauma, sporting goods, and a variety of, uh, of activity. We know in the general population, again, we're looking at uh, an incidence of trauma-related olfactory dysfunction. So it's really important for us when we look at the incidences of other neurodegenerative disorders to ensure that the person didn't have a previous head injury and had lost their sense of smell. Well, unfortunately, uh, most physicians don't check for the sense of smell. And as a consequence, uh, we don't really know if they've had a sense of smell until we see them. And then you can wrongly think that the person might have an early onset Alzheimer's disease or uh, Parkinson's disease when in fact uh, they don't. So when we look at uh, different uh, whiplash injuries and, and things like that, we know that the likelihood of having a loss of smell as a consequence of the, the car accident, for instance, that this typically is going to relate to the severity of the, of the trauma and whether there was truly an acceleration, deceleration moment of the, uh, of the head. We know that uh, occipital and side impact are going to cause the most damage uh, to the, uh, the brain olfactory system, whereas a frontal impact is going to give you the least. Oftentimes you think, wow, if you hit the front of your head, your nose is on the front, that's it, but not so. Frontal impacts really give us the least consequence of what's going to happen to your sense of smell, whereas a side impact or a backwards impact occipital really, really uh, give us the, uh, the worst types of outcomes, and this can change your orientation of what you're going to do for your patients if you're thinking an early onset Parkinsonian disease or other types of uh, concomitants. We know that you can, uh, you know, break your your skull, if you would, fracture your skull or fracture through the cribriform plate, and that gives you the classic loss of smell, but you don't need that to happen to lose your sense of smell. When you do have an incident and your sense of smell is uh, lost or it goes, we expect that there's going to be a relationship between the onset of that loss of sense of smell uh, and the timing of the injury so that the relationship is about a year. If you're going to have damage to it, your sense of smell is going to go within a year. If you don't lose it within a year, then probably you haven't done uh, so very, very, uh, so very, very much. Well, 
We know that uh, there's a variety of of disorders involving the cerebellum that are also associated with the loss of the sense of smell. For instance, in Friedrich's ataxia, we can see a a loss of uh, sense of smell. But very, very interestingly, when we look at uh, sense of smell and some of the the disorders of the higher executive function, such as schizophrenia, these are hard-linked. In other words, uh, a loss of sense of smell is a hallmark of uh, schizophrenia. And when we look at schizophrenia, it's really important to realize that, hey, you got a loss of smell. Is this person schizophrenic? Do they have Parkinson's disease? Do they have Alzheimer's disease? Have they had a head injury? There's a whole lot of things that come up. So you need to be able to to examine these, uh, these sorts of things. We, you all see people that do have uh, have headaches. And uh, when we look at migraine headaches, the smell loss is, um, well, it's, it's more something that's going to occur between ictal attacks. That is to say, uh, you, you may have uh, some smell loss in between uh, between attacks, or you may have the loss uh, because of the actual ictal area of the, the headache. So it's not really specific, but hey, you know, can be a migraine. We know that the sense of smell in women that are pregnant is increased, that hyperosmia. It's classically associated with, uh, with pregnancy, and um, who knows? Who knows why? I mean, is it true hypersensitivity or is it reactivity? We don't really, uh, really know. Uh, some people just are never blessed with a sense of smell. They go through their whole life not being able to smell things that other people uh, can't smell. So that there's a, a congenital probability of anosmia, and these are individuals that have developmental lesions in the olfactory bulbs and and stocks. Uh, so uh, when you look at these types of things, you know, how long has this occurred? We know that viral infections early in life can lead to olfactory epithelial damage and atrophy of the olfactory bulbs. That's just a fact. So when we look at that loss of sense of smell, we want to be able to really put a handle on it so very, very early. And uh, this is going to help us, of course, as we go down the, uh, the individual line in regards to uh, the treatment of our, our individual patients. So the sense of smell is really greatly underappreciated by um, pretty well everybody. There's evidence that olfactory dysfunction is an early sign of uh, Parkinson's disease, of Alzheimer's disease, and uh, realistically, it's something that's very, very important uh, for us in regards to the types of things that we might be able to do for humankind. Smell and respiration seem to go hand in hand, and there's some very, very interesting activities that we look at in regards to uh, breathing and respirations. People that don't breathe right might have a, a problem in the sense of smell, or if they've got autonomic concomitants, or they've got a cold, a variety of other things. So let's just leave that. I think we've uh, we've done a pretty good job in saying, hey, you've got to, to check it. We know that regulation of breathing patterns uh, seems to have an influence on the 
the disability that your patients are going to have regarding activity of the vestibular uh, system. We know that the treatment for vestibulopathies and vestibular activity is, is really a non-drug and non-surgical aspect that is uh, generally through physical uh, modalities and we know that uh, proprioceptive exercises and changes can improve postural control and therefore defeat uh, dizziness. But we also know that breathing rhythms are, are really, really important for us. So it's really pretty easy to uh, to look at our examination of individuals that have losses of smell, look at their respiratory rates, and then look at that in regards to the activity that we look at in our patient rehabilitation. We know that when we look at vestibular disorders, it is uh, the treatment is largely non-drugs and non-surgery. Exercise rehabilitation is the really the key to develop some central compensation via habituation and different rebalancing of the frequency of output, uh, especially at the vestibular nuclei, which can be considered to be, you know, migrated cerebellar neurons into the individual uh, brain stem, and of course the other connections throughout the neuraxes. When we look at different uh, exercises that you can uh, look at. We're pretty well looking at exercises involving head movements and eye coordination or head and eye movements and then body movements, different balance tasks and and uh, things that, uh, that you pretty well know if you're taking the vestibular rehabilitation program. We know that the individual exercises that you give to people in regards to head and eyes and body uh, can be also uh, complemented by different therapies, whether they be stimulation of joints by manipulation or whether they be a variety of muscle techniques, uh, dietary techniques, and other techniques that are more psychological in regards to reduce the anxiety that's associated with uh, vestibulopathies and individual uh, dizziness. Well, here's what happens. Uh, when we've got changes in our postural attitude, either from sitting in a chair to standing up or simply standing and, and just being able to adapt to labyrinthine stimulation, we're going to have to have reflux and these reflexes are going to have to uh, be maintained. Uh, the autonomic nervous system is going to have to be able to maintain the blood supply to your brain to keep you, to keep you uh, upright. We know that the vestibular system has a great influence uh, on the autonomic uh, responses. And we know that these autonomic responses can be changed by activation of vestibular uh, activation and the activation of the vestibular system and the brainstem is going to modify the frequency of uh, respiration. So if the vestibular system is healthy, then stimulation of it is going to modify the frequency. But if you've got vestibular dysfunction, you may not have uh, a change in respiratory frequency when you activate the vestibular system. Now, the areas that make you, make your rate and rhythm of breathing are very, very closely associated with the superior salivatory nucleus and also have a relationship to the amount of mucus that are in, is in your nose, the areas that you're going to dissolve aromatic compounds and allow you to smell some, some things. Well, let's look at uh, normal people, if we're going to say, or people that don't have vestibular disease. If you've got a normal patient without vestibular disease and you give them a caloric stimulation or you rotate the head in pitch, that's flexion and extension, 
you can change the respiratory frequency due to the shortening of the interval between consecutive inspirations, and this can occur with no significant change in the duration of inspiration. We use this when we manipulate the ribs. If you get the person to extend their head, they have a moment of inspiration. So we know that labyrinthine stimulation, moving of the head, suggests that the vestibular system is one that really contributes to respiratory regulation or control, and it does this by a modulation of the time coefficients from the brainstem that would be associated with the elicitation of, uh, of inspiration of a new breath. So when we look at vestibular stimuli, not only on the mucous membranes and the, and the nose and the aspect of smell, but the control of breathing, we realize that there can be a compromise of uh, changes in, in respiratory rhythms during the acute stage of a vestibular uh, function, and this can last for a long period of, of time. Well, what we notice is that depending upon the person's orientation of their body and the position of their head, there's going to be activation of that labyrinthine vestibular system when there's postural changes. So basically, if you've got uh, the person sitting down or lying down and they pop up, then you're going to have to have a reorientation of your head and trunk to a new position. Uh, if a person's got a good vestibular system and a good brain, uh, they're going to have a uh, consistent decrease of the respiratory frequency due to an increase in the interval between consecutive uh, inspirations. That's if things are normal. But if you've got somebody with that has an acute unilateral vestibular lesion and they have a reorientation of their body part and their head, then these people have a tendency to increase the respiratory frequency. And individuals that have chronic bilateral vestibular lesions also show a tendency to uh, to uh, show responses that are all over the place, you know. So uh, it really gives us a good idea of the changes between normal folks and, and people with unilateral lesions and people that have bilateral uh, lesions. So uh, if you're in good shape and you have a person that's lying down and you pop them up, they should have a decrease of respiratory frequency. If they've got a unilateral vestibular lesion, you should have an increase of respiratory frequency. If they've got bilateral vestibular dysfunction, well, hey, you know, it can be all over the place, uh, so it can be confusing. So obviously, if they've got bilateral vestibular function, you're going to be able to say to, to that individual and to yourself that stimulation from sitting down to coming up is either going to have... Uh, no change, a decrease change, or an increase change. Well, here's the difference. If you've got bilateral vestibular dysfunction, you're going to see some other concomitants, postural changes, etc. So when an individual does not have an increase in respiratory frequency, they might have bilateral vestibular dysfunctions. The problem that we have is that individuals with bilateral vestibular dysfunctions might also have the same presentation as someone with a unilateral vestibular dysfunction, and then therapeutically, you're going to pick the, uh, the worst side. 
So what about the autonomic control that we have, the autonomic uh, nervous system that gives you the mucus in your nose and makes your eyes a little bit wet, that allows you to appreciate smell, that affects your gut? And, of course, all these autonomic uh, systems are intimately related to vagal output and cortical activity. You know, you smell something uh, nice that's cooking, you're going to have a different brain response and a different autonomic response, which is very, very profound uh, for them. So autonomic control is influenced by respiration, arousal, and activity. And arousal is is really mediated a lot by the olfactory system. Walk outside in a garden, smell the grass, uh, these sorts of things. So what are the, the consequences with arousal? Uh, we know that uh, respiration, of course, is associated with arousal and activation, and this has an influence on your cardiovascular system as well as the oscillation of autonomic uh, output, uh, for instance, even muscle sympathetic nerve oscillations. We know that the way a person volitionally breathes, you know, they can control their breathing, and this, of course, can influence autonomic function. Well, what about uh, breathing exercises? Well, we can do them fast, we can do them slow, we can change the rhythm. What are we going to get? Well, if you breathe really slow, like six breaths per minute, only six per minute, this generally has favorable effects on cardiovascular and respiratory functions. It, it, it's probably, because you're breathing slower, is going to increase the uh, resting oxygen saturation. It's going to increase respiratory sinus arrhythmia and the arterial baroreflex sensitivity. Uh, it's going to make you feel a little calmer and, you know, make you feel better. This is like, you know, the sort of thing. Uh, But it's true. And this is very, very helpful for us, of course, in, in looking at people that are under stress or have a variety of, uh, of other types of uh, concomitants. And this wellness type of aspect with slow breathing uh, to decrease anxiety is, uh, is very, very important in people that, that are nervous because of an individual condition that they have. And we realize that breathing respiratory exercises are very, very important in individuals that have a loss of olfactory activity. If you increase oxygenation, you increase that sense of arousal and autonomic control to make up, for instance, for a deficit, you can increase brain function and maintain brain integrity, we think, for a whole load of time, so much so that if people are anxious uh, or they're... um, you know they have different problems of stress. Uh, slow breathing is is just a super thing to to do. Uh, we know that the effects of controlled breathing, at least the slow ones at six breaths per minute, um, can be associated with the synchronization of the respiratory rhythm with the frequency of the Meyer waves increasing the power of respiratory sinus arrhythmia. Uh, we know that an individual that has fast breathing. Uh, exercises for the same duration uh, over time as someone that's doing slow breathing exercises is not going to affect autonomic rhythms. And we also find that individuals that are hyperventilating because they've got decreased cardiac output or they've got mediastinal compromise or they've got postural changes where their diaphragm isn't descending uh, may be breathing too too quickly. Uh, Since the loss of sense of smell is associated with decreased frontal activity and decreased frontal 
seismological activity is associated with changes in the center of pressure, whether it's due to the changes in the vertical saccadic eye system such that a postural change occurs or whether the postural changes cause the plasticity and changes in the vertical eye saccade system is, you know, it's an open chicken and egg sort of deal. But what we do know is that individuals that have uh, lesions uh, such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease that are associated with changes in respiratory uh, changes in the sense of smell will develop postural compensations, and those postural compensations uh, may affect the quality of their own uh, respiratory uh, rates. If they're breathing a little bit fast, uh, they are not going to have the same autonomic types of controls. In fact, you may get somebody who has got early onset loss of smell and give them slow breathing and they can start to breathe again because of the increase in the autonomic change, the amount of mucus in their nose, the ability to dissolve the aromatic compounds, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which is uh, really uh, something I think that is uh, pretty, uh, pretty darn uh, exciting. So when we look at uh, breathing types of uh, function, we really want to teach people to breathe appropriately, and it's really good to uh, give them some paced uh, breathing. Two hertz breathing is approximately 12 breaths per minute, uh, 0.2 hertz uh, breathing. And you can use a, a metronome and keep teach uh, people to practice breathing at that rate during that interactive feedback. That's not the interactive metronome package that's associated with clapping, but it is an interactive type of metronome that you can use to get people to to uh, pace their breathing. You can do it, of course, lying. You can do it seating. And you can also do it while performing a change of, past, uh, change of posture, if you would. So when we look at the respiratory patterns, you want to look at an individual, uh, see what the respiratory rate is, give them exercises that would uh, time both the, the, the time of inspiration, the time of uh, time of expiration, and these things can give you a whole variety of activities. You also want to make sure that when they're breathing, that their shoulder is back, that they're not sucking it in and swallowing it, if you would, and uh, do a variety of different things. When you look at respiration, you also want to change their um, their proprioceptive types of input, things that are very, very good for that frontal lobe. Again, if the uh, concomitant of a loss of sense of smell is associated uh, with frontal lobe disorders, and it is, then we want to do other things to the frontal lobe, realizing that the frontal lobe majestically is associated with activation of the intermedial lateral cell nucleus, or better said, that as the brain is doing a good job, the IML is is inhibited. When the cerebellum is activated, it activates the NTS and inhibits the IML. And when both the cerebellum and the frontal lobe are not activated, the IML is uh, is not inhibited and can act a little bit more. And if it acts a little bit more, the sympathetic endings are, are not going to do the same uh, sort of thing. 
uh, as they would before with difference in vasculature and, of course, difference in the ability to, uh, to smell. So when you have a loss of smell, you've got to assume also that you have a very good probability that the ability to modulate your autonomic nervous system is also compromised. Respiratory exercises can, of course, uh, change this. We also uh, realize that along with respiration, we want to increase proprioceptive activity to the cerebellum and the frontal lobe. Uh, anybody's got a sense of smell, hey, you know, consider that they've got a probability of brain dysfunction and do respiratory and proprioceptive activation to have a probability of increasing their brain activity. It's uh, important, uh, I think, to get people to breathe slow, walk slow, give them, you know, maximum amount of, of activity, focus on their movement of their individual uh, body parts, shift their body weights, uh, focus on their efforts of individual uh, joints and uh, individual balance. Just, you know, take it really, really uh, simple <clears throat> and then continue on and be able to uh, to look at uh, you know changes in individual people then you want to be able to look at people and measure different consequences in different positions we realize that as uh, the frontal lobe goes down, if you would, the probability of loss of smell is going to come up because of integrational activities. And then, of course, we have the autonomic types of concomitants. So we want to be able to measure people sitting down, lying down, standing up, and look at this these autonomic concomitants and look at them very, very clearly. In other words, that loss of sense of smell may be the thing that dictates you to find out that you've got different autonomic relationships to positional changes. So when you look at people that are uh, lying down, they're in the supine position. We know that individuals with vestibulopathy or dizziness or cerebellar types of lesions, they're going to show a breathing frequency that's similar to, you know, pretty, uh, pretty healthy uh, patients. And this is very, very uh, important. It's the changes in posture that is um, that are that are the most. Uh, the most important. And when you look at the changes of posture, then we look at changes in the respiratory rate that can be associated with changes in cerebellar functions, changes in the different autonomic types of uh, types of facts and, and a variety of other, uh, other things that will allow people to equilibrate and really uh, change their change their life. We know that as you breathe slower and fuller that your anxiety levels are going to decrease, which means that you have a probability of not firing your frontal lobe so very, very much and, and pushing it to a state that exceeds the metabolic uh, capacity of that individual uh, frontal lobe. We also want to prevent any anxiety-related hyperventilation in individuals with frontal demise that develop dystonia or the individual movement disorders do become anxious. And then when they hyperventilate, they can throw that whole motor system through another window of increased uh, frequency of firing, percussion myotonias, carpal pedal spasm, and a variety of other types of uh, things. We know that as individuals... Um, decrease their frontal lobe integrity. And again, we're saying that, hey, if you lose your sense of smell, think they've got that. And if they got that, then let's give them some respiratory exercises. We know that uh, the most uh, common 
mental disorder that we're going to see is is the disorder of anxiety and individuals are you know we've got a probability that you know a quarter of the people uh, that are walking around are going to be a little anxious about about something and uh, we know that anxiety is uh, associated with a poor quality of life and and uh, disability we know that individuals that have problems with their basal ganglia or the vestibular system uh, oftentimes may have uh, you know higher executive functions or what you would say would be a psychiatric disorder anxiety or some of the other types of things schizophrenia we know that when we look at uh, individuals that have any anything is wrong with them, you can expect them to be a little bit anxious. And so we need to take care of these people. We do some behavioral therapy and uh, concomitants and and just really, really uh, go for that and 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 try to decrease it. So uh, when we look at an individual person that has lots of a sense of smell, and you look at that and you say, hey, what's happened to the you know, frontal executive act- activities? Look at the respiratory rates and then get them to uh, have the respiratory rates measured when they're lying down to standing up and see if, in fact, they increase or they, or they decrease or uh, really uh, what's going to happen. And then give them some breathing exercises, again, low and slow, six you know, breaths per second, nice and easy, and then get them to do this as a changing uh, position. So really what are we looking at here? We're looking at the fact that the uh, sense of smell is integral to a variety of things in humankind that really can change people's lives. And when it's got a little bit of a deficit, we can start to intervene. Uh, One of the basic aspects of intervention are to do things that are going to help us self-regulate our own autonomic nervous system. And if we can do that, then we can do just a variety of just so many, many wonderful things. Okay, I think that's pretty well it on the request for it. And then I'm going to get back to some other areas that I love very, very dearly. And hopefully you'll find them fine. So uh, if you got a request, just send it in. And we'll just plug them in. And um, and I think your college will appreciate it. Great. If I do a good job for you, and I'll certainly try to. Okay, thanks. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to make any suggestions for any future podcast topics, please visit the Contact Us page on carriginstitute.com.